Today I welcome Simon Lees, Head of School at Toowoomba Anglican School in Australia. In this episode, I discuss branding's success to capture a school's purpose, the boarding school landscape in Australia, and transforming a small school to fit the growing needs of a local community. I want to talk about you and Toowoomba Anglican School because in just eight years, you've taken the school from a very small primary school to be the only co-ed K-12 boarding school in Australia. What led to this transformation? First of all, it's been a wonderful journey. So I, so I arrived at the school at the very beginning of 2014 and the school was founded in 1911. It started as an all-boys school, traditionally looking after boarders from throughout Queensland and northern New South Wales, which we'll talk about that geography later, but it's a pretty expansive piece of space. And we became fully co-ed in 1972. So we amalgamated with the local primary girls. And then if I'm really honest, in you know, 2012, 2013, just before my time, the school numbers are in slight decline. Primary boarding was becoming harder and harder. The other thing in Queensland is, oh, yes, seven students were once were then associated with primary school, but then they were going to be moved up into the secondary school. So there was going to be a sort of a shift in education. So the school would have become a kindergarten to year six school rather than a kindergarten to year seven. Financially, structurally, it was too large and an important an organisation which was going to be in great difficulty with some of the changes which were potentially forced upon it. And then I think the other reason as well is to be a co-ed, independent school, which was providing boarding and day for both primary and secondary was very unique. So, so there was part necessity and there was part we also really wanted to do it. It's certainly not been without challenges, and I'm sure we'll talk about those in a while. But, you know, to create a school which was a, a beloved primary school, and a very famous school within the region, a preparatory school. And there's not many preparatory boarding schools in Australia. I think we were the only co-ed one, and there's another one down in Sydney, which was all boys at the time. So to turn that school from that into a K-12 to was, was quite a significant move, but it's gone incredibly well. I think 2014, we had 350, 360 students. We now have 730 students across the board. You know, and so, yes, we've grown in secondary, but we've also grown and consolidated our primary and our boarding spaces as well. So, you know, so, so far it's doing well. There's been a lot of hard yards. And was this your goal from the outset, influenced by your previous experience in K-12 schools? There's certainly parts of it. And I had a really wonderful sort of moment a few, you know, a number of years ago where we knew, particularly in our secondary school, that we had a blank canvas. We had an established primary school. And, you know, you get that really lovely feeling of primary schools, the great sense of community. And it was, how do we transfer that up into a secondary space as well? And it was lovely that we were able to grow quite sensitively in a, in a very patient way. We would look at year nines and go, you know, what would be the best year nine that we could possibly have for this city? As we grew, you know, we certainly didn't feel rushed. Uh, did I use some of the reflections on some of my past schools? Of course. I think it was also making sure that what was the key to make sure that the team came on board with us. And it wasn't just about growth. It was adding people as we moved along that journey. So yes, and you know, but this, this is a very unique school, different than any school I've ever worked in, but it's got, of course, all schools have some similarities, if that makes sense. Yeah, and driving any amount of transformation or change is not easy. And it's, you stand at the finish line now, having gone through this process. But when you look back at that change, did everybody embrace this transition or did you encounter pushback from members of the community? You know, it's a great question, Simon, and change is a really challenging thing. And what we did try and do, we really tried to articulate the key reasons. So we were very honest with our community about why we had to do it. And the alternatives to the change were actually probably more stark. You know, the alternatives to the change were potentially the school closing. The alternatives were it wasn't going to be a successful school in its current form. 
Of course, there were people within the community who felt we were changing something that was very beloved to them. And of course, we had some people, you know, almost how dare we make this change? And I'm sure that there'll be some people in the community who would still lament on the fact that the schools changed. But overall, what I will say is there was a general sense of buy-in by many members of the community. We still have some children who come here just in primary and, and go to different secondary schools because for 105 years, that's what they did previously. But overall, it's, and over time, it's taken a lot of meetings, a lot, a lot of discussions with parents, with the teaching staff as well. So I think we've got that, but no, yeah, absolutely no doubt that there were some challenges in terms of, you know, making sure that everyone saw it. And also making sure that we got the message out to the local community that particularly we were, we were now a school for both primary and secondary students. Because within the local community, we were often seen as that's where you might go for primary, but not for secondary. So that's taken many, many years to sort of get over that cultural shift as well. How has the school's mission or philosophy changed at its core? Or is it really the same as Taz underneath? I think that's one of the key things strategically. We didn't want to change the feel or the tone and the culture of the school. The, the school, you know, from my very first day that I came here, and I know that speaking to past students, and we've got an incredibly supportive alumni base. This school is really loved by, you know, by not just people within the city of Toowoomba, but, you know, throughout Queensland, northern New South Wales. You know, there's a great sense of rich history in the school. And what I certainly know is that, you know, whilst that cultural part took a bit of an adjustment, you know, we didn't have to sort of rewrite. We were not changing philosophy. It was more, you know, we wanted to be still a school which had family at the core. We wanted to be a school which still had boarding at the core. But of course, there were going to be bigger people in the school. Now, and I think that was the biggest change. How are we going to do that with teenagers? How are we going to do that with 17-year-olds when, of course, the oldest child in the past was the age 12? But when we reminded people that the teenagers were once our primary children as well, and they're also part of that culture, I think that, that really resonated. And so, you know, I look, at my, I look at my current head boy and head girl in the school, you know, who have been at the school for many, many years, and they brought that culture up with them from both the primary to secondary. So I feel very comfortable that we've got it right. There's still always work to be done. It's never over, is it? You've still got to be the custodians of that culture. You say that it's never done. And when you go on growth plans and you do develop a school, there's always some strategic direction and further planning in play. What is next for Taz? There's parts of what we need to do now, which are about consolidation, which is, you know, one of the great challenges. And we've grown sensitively, but it is different running and belonging to a school with over 700 children. If we are going to have systems where we genuinely believe that every child is known and we want to know them really in a deep sense, you know, we've got to make sure that our systems and processes are really, really in place to make sure that all of those things are covered. And one of the things, you know, which probably gives me a little bit of a sleepless night at times is, you know, do we have all of those things really in place now that we've grown? You know, can we say to the same level now what we could say, say, two or three years ago? If I can just give an example, Simon, when we started with our first cohort of year 12 students, we, you know, we graduated in year 12 in Australia, you know, there were only 12 students, you know, in that first cohort. And so, you know, whilst it was a wonderful group, we need those children inside and out. Now you've got full cohorts and now you've got waiting lists in your year groups. You've, you've still got to make sure you give that same level of personal care and attention as you've grown. So I think, you know, making sure the systems are in place. Financially, now we're in a much, much better position than we were. So we, I think we've just got to make sure we manage that money, you know, in a sustainable manner. And there's some really nice projects coming on board, but I want to make sure that as we develop those projects, we still have enough money in the bank to do some of the normal day-to-day -day things. I think sometimes schools can overcapitalize. So you build a big, shiny building, 
but you don't have money to pay in the old classroom. So, so I think we've just got to be mindful of those things as we go along as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's great to see the vision that you've got for TAS. And I know that Interactive Schools helped you recently develop your new branding and messaging of Together We Are TAS. Can you tell me more about what this means for you and why this is so significant? It was a wonderful time to go through that messaging. And I think it was a time where we just had some of our first graduating classes of year 12. And when we look at our school, and I know there's lots of schools globally which might have similar systems, but in Australia, you know, we're, we're a day school, a boarding school, we're primary boarding, we're secondary boarding, we're co-ed, you know, we're looking after children from the city and some of the most geographically isolated parts of the planet. And the idea that it doesn't matter who you are in the school, the system, you know, there's that feeling of togetherness, you know, and I think it really, you know, and I'm always mindful of just putting taglines on for the sake of it. But I think it really sort of resonated with our community that, you know, there was this sense of togetherness, whether you were a, me- a member of our community. And I actually had one of our past students who was here in 1936. He came, you know, one of our most elderly past students. And he said he just loves it because he says he doesn't mind who's here now or whether you've got boys or girls or whether you've got young or old. It's about the fact of being that togetherness and the fact that the school is still there. It joins us together in, in its most obvious sense. It's a really hard tagline to argue against, isn't it? You know, you're either in it or you're not, you know, and, you know, someone said that to me a while ago is what students do you want to come to the school? And I said, well, you know, if, if they want to be here, they're welcome. You know, we want people who want to be on, on the journey with us. We also say to any new student, you know, you don't, whether you're here for one day or one week or 10 years, you know, we want to make sure everyone feels equally as important. You know, you don't have to be here for 10 years before you feel part of our community. And I think that's really important, given the fact that many of them are traveling vast distances to come to the school. Yeah, I hope that helps with that, Simon, but it's a great tagline. And I will say, you know, it was a really nice collaborative process working with interactive schools, you know, because I think sometimes you need people just to help you consolidate those ideas and thoughts. You talked about sort of meaningless taglines, and that's something that we're very keen not to put on there because a lot of marketing is quite, it's very veneer and full of promise. And, you know, part of having a strong tagline that has meaning and depth and ties to your purpose actually does deliver what you want it to do. But I did notice, and it's really great to see that you and your staff have embraced social media and you are sharing your story every day. Was it easy to change your routine to include posting on social media and to share that authentic together we are task? I think working with you, and I I will congratulate, uh, you know, our director of marketing is is also a past student, Gemma Ferrier. She's been a real leader in that space. And I think when you've got a champion who really can help articulate why we do it. I think that certainly really helps. You know, social media, it's, it's such a wonderful thing, you know, you know, I think to get your celebrations out. Of it. I know we know it's marketing, but it's also celebrating all the good stuff that we do. It's a challenge sometimes keeping up with it, you know, and, and I think, you know, I've got a head of school Instagram account. I've got, you know, I've got my own LinkedIn. You know, we've got, we've got all different accounts for all different sections of school. And, and I suppose now, again, we're just going to make sure that they all you know, they've all got that equal level of quality, particularly your main pages. But I think we're doing it well, Simon. You know, again, we don't want it to just look tokenistic. You know, it's got to have a genuine feel of the school. And I think we've noticed that during this COVID period. You know, how do you sort of show the school when you really you're just looking at it online or in snapshots? Because, you know, it's the feel of the school, which you only really get when you walk in through the campus gate, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And how do you keep up? Because I do follow you on LinkedIn and, you know, I love seeing your posts and just your your real passion and love of Toowoomba. How do you manage to keep up with all the comments? Because all of your posts do draw lots of comments. Do you feel compelled you need to respond to everybody in some way? 
do you enjoy reading the comments that are there? I mean, how do you how do you manage it yourself and the time? I do put a little bit of time into it every week, and, and I I see it, and I see my senior executive team as well. You know, we're great advocates for the school. You know, and the way I see things that if the school has a good, strong presence through my own professional networks, I mean, I look at that as as a sort of good time well spent. In answer to your question, I will try and reply to people as best as I can. We build up some wonderful relationships through that, which have become real relationships. So, you know, there's a couple of schools in the UK, I think Truro School down in Cornwall and, and Wells Cathedral School. Through LinkedIn, we've developed relationships with those schools. And now we have student exchanges, whether they're virtual or actually connected. I had to reach out recently to one of my senior students who wants to be a mechanical engineer. So I've now got that person an internship through LinkedIn, through someone I didn't know. But someone on my LinkedIn knew them. So I think that if we can, and I'm not, not, not a brand ambassador for LinkedIn, but I think it's, it's more about building networks before you need them. I think that's really important. So it's also nice for me to be able to read what other people are doing as well. I mean, there's some really interesting people I do follow on LinkedIn who, you know, just some of their language and stories, and it, and it just helps me. And I think particularly through COVID, I just, you know, watching how the world responded to it. Sometimes some countries were a month ahead of what we had to deal with. So I could reach out to them and say, could you just share a letter you've sent to your community? Um, and I, and I, so I did find it a useful tool. So I ho- hope that helps with that answer, Simon. Yeah, and the whole digital way of connecting people is just the only way you can reach different parts of the globe and reach different audiences. So your use of it and your impact of it is brilliant. Could you just tell me a little bit more about how your admissions and enrolments have been affected by your Together We Are TAS and your continued effort to promote your story on social media? It's probably worth noting we're in, a, we're in a city where we are surrounded by, I think, at least eight or nine other boarding schools. So the competition in Toowoomba per capita is fierce. And there's some absolutely outstanding schools in the city, you know, and there's both outstanding state and independent schools in the city. And it's, it's not a huge population. Going further west is Queensland and going north is Queensland. And that's a fairly large geographically isolated part of the world. So we don't take any enrollment for granted. You know, every, every enrollment you've got to work hard for. With Gemma in, in marketing and Elizabeth, who's our registrar, you know, runs, runs enrollments, they, they work tirelessly to make sure that we're really getting out there and, you know, certainly having a presence. So, so if we want to go and get borders or connect with borders, we spend a lot of time out west. You know, we, we travel out there and we, and if I can give an example, that might be a short road trip, might be a five, six hour drive to someone's property. You might spend an evening with them and they might invite four or five of their friends from the local community. That might, you know, the enrollment might come from that three or four years down the line. Yeah, but if you don't spend that quality time out with your boarding community, you simply won't get borders. You know, they want to meet the key people. Day families are a little bit different. That's probably more within the local geography. There's absolutely no doubt that our social media campaigns have gone well. I think we get really good feedback. Our analytics are very good. Uh, The background analytics are very good. I think we've become more attuned to when to post and how to post. Do we get it right? No. You you know, every time, not not always. You know, there's some posts where you think it's going to go really well and it doesn't, but someone's seen it and it's a celebration of something. But you've got to work hard here for enrollments. You know, there's no doubt about that. But our numbers are very good, Simon, in terms of historically. You know, we certainly don't want to rest on any laurels. There's always going to be hard work to be done. We've got to make sure that we still put that time and effort into. But what we do find is that when people come in through the school gates, once they're in the gates, it's a hard school not to like. You know, geographically, it's in an absolutely beautiful position. It does have a really great feel as you walk around the campus. We sit on top of the Great Dividing Range. And when you're standing in our library looking over there, you can see 
50, 60 kilometer views. You know, so I mean, it's in a really beautiful position with the city behind us. So for many students, it's, you know, it's a beautiful setting for a school. And I know that, you know, I know buildings shouldn't just sell a school, but it is a nice place to come to come and live and work. And you might see that with some of our drone footage of the school, which has been really, really exceptional in terms of how you get over and have a look at the school as well. But enrollments are hard work, Simon. You know, you can't, you know, they're not, as I'm sure many schools in the UK feel as well. It's, it's not an easy gig if you're trying to get enrollments. Yeah, you've just got to keep sharing your vision, your values, and just being authentic. And the amount of stories you guys do get out, as you said, with your team, you've got an exceptional team that do champion the message. And that's the only way. And then your community themselves have already bought into it. And if they're fully engaged because they're having a great experience at the school, then they'll be your word of mouth. And that is a really critical piece of the pie as well. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. In our parent surveys, I think we say it's, it's up to 80% of people will come to the school based on word of mouth. However, we know what's giving them that word of mouth and what's keeping them on the hook. So I think it's really important. So we've got to make sure, you know, how do you keep your current families? It's not all that marketing to new. It's about making sure you're also promoting the message to your current ones as well, so that they, they're very proud about going to the schools that their children attend. Yeah, and I'd say it's even more important to get it right. And I think schools often get that bit wrong. Once they've got your money, you're kind of in, and then all you get is communication. You won't necessarily get what I'd call brand engagement, where you're really giving me everything that I need. How do you guys cover parent communications and make sure that parents are engaged? Because 80% through word of mouth is a very high number. I think the industry standard for independent schools that we've got is about 60 to 70 percent is word of mouth and the rest is just through marketing and advertising. So yours is high. How do you keep it so high? In terms of communication, that's always a bit of a minefield, isn't it? Because, you know, it's something we're reviewing at the moment where we still feel there's probably too many channels where our parents are getting information, you know, and we've got to really look social media to us is a place where, you know, that's about celebrating and sharing the good news and the good stories. We have to understand that not everyone goes on all the social media media as well. So some people don't have Instagram, some people don't have Facebook, some people don't have LinkedIn. We're moving more and more, you know, we do use email sometimes when when we're simply just trying to get some key letters from the head of school or some of the senior staff. We're moving everything onto school apps as well now. So all all things will be funneled in from one place. You know, Simon, what I think is is more important than all of those things and Every morning and almost every morning, a member of the senior executive or myself will be at the front gate and we'll meet parents. Uh, We still have a system where at the end of school, the children get picked up in cars and because of the safety aspect, we have to open the boots and throw the bags in the back of the boot. The senior executive team and myself will help with that process. So I think to have an accessible senior leadership team is incredibly important, you know, to make sure when the borders arrive, you're around the campus and you're just having those conversations. And someone told me a while ago, said, you know, is it easier to do that because your school is slightly smaller than a bigger school? And I don't think it is. I think you've got to put that time in. Front loading that time saves us a lot of other time and stress later. So I don't think anything beats getting out there and meeting people, you know, whether that's on the sports field, at the Eisteddfords, at the music festivals, or just at the front gate. So that doesn't deal with some of the more deeper issues, you know, that every school is going to face. But I think you've got to be very visible. And I think as a head, you know, you, you've got to be out there, you know, welcoming the children of the gay, because I do think that bookends the school day for them. You're a safe place for them to come into. 
you know, and then be there at the end of the day as well. And I can't do that every day, but I do that most. Yeah, and, I, and I've got a great team of senior leaders who also do that. And I think that's so, so important. And I hopefully that's a, that's a, I know there's other schools that do that well, but for us, that's a good point of difference. Yeah, it's a great point of difference. Being visible, not being just behind emails and, and messages is, is really important for a parent community to feel that they are dropping their child off and that you care and, you know, you do business with people. So getting you and your leadership team out there every day, I think it's a great initiative that I think all schools should do in some form. I see it certainly down at the primary end, but even at the senior end, I don't know why teachers are not doing the same thing. So let's hope we can get more schools doing that. I want to talk about boarding and boarding, particularly in Australia. Is the boarding school landscape in Australia different than in the UK and other parts of the world? And is it because of your large, vast country and obviously being so distributed in terms of population, or is it other factors? That might depend on where your school's situated. So if, you, if you're in a big city boarding school, say in Sydney or Brisbane, you may attract still geographically a number of students into your boarding spaces from those cities as well, if that, if that makes sense. Uh, not all, many will travel vast distances to those schools as well. For us and for more of the regional boarding schools, you know, most of our boarders, and I would say at least 90% of our boarders are coming from regional and rural parts of, of both Queensland, northern New South Wales, uh, the Northern Territory. And if I can just give an example, and I'm not exaggerating this, we've got, a, we've got one of our younger boarders, he's, I won't give his surname, but he's a, he's a young boarder called Jack. He lives on a property in the Northern Territory. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this, but if you had to drive from his front door to his post box, it's a three hour drive. And so for when he's traveling to the school, if he had to, if he had to travel overland to the school, he might have to travel potentially 24, 25 hours nonstop overland if he could actually get here via road. So he'll drive three, four hours, get a flight, drive another four or five hours. Not all our boarders are like that. So our boarding students will come from the short distances, two to three hours away, medium distances, five to 10, and then anything up to 10 to 20 to 30 hours away in terms of overland. So I hope that maybe gives the audience an understanding of how vast the country is. So, And is your boarding community international or is it mainly national kids coming in? It's a really good question. It's the majority are, are Australian children who are from rural areas. But the school is interesting. Within the Toowoomba region, we've now, within our school population, got children of up to 40 different nationalities. So the day population is very multicultural, which is wonderful. In terms of our boarding, we have spaces for up to, say, 10, 15 international students. I think we've got seven or eight international students currently with us. So most of our boarders are coming from Queensland, northern New South Wales, that northern territory. Or they're now starting to come up the range from Brisbane, you know, moving out of the city and coming to a more sort of, you know, regional school. In answer to your differences, there a difference between the UK or other boarding schools in Australia. I think the, the distance really is an impact. So the key reason people come to boarding in Australia is because of geographical isolation. You know, these are children who many of them don't have a choice of going to the local primary or secondary school because geographically it's too far away. Uh, even the local one for them, in many instances, might be an hour or an hour and a half drive, both there and back. Not, not all are like that. Some will come to the boarding school because they know that we'll be able to provide a, a vast range of opportunities that that small town can't provide. You know, and when I mean vast range, that might be the rugby team, the cricket team, the netball team, the music ensemble. I do think there's less who come 
because they see boarding as a lifestyle or as a badge of honor, if that makes sense. So there's, so there's many families who they know from a very young age they're going to have to send the children to boarding, but it's a really tough decision for them, you know, because the natural instinct is they'd want to keep them at home. In terms of Australia, the government is very good at also supporting boarders financially. So there are government incentives, you know, there's incentives such as living away from home allowances. There's an absolutely wonderful group called the Isolated Children's and Parents Association, which is a big lobby group, both federally in Australia and both within Queensland, which advocates for rural children. And they very much look for funding, how they can support both boarding children, but also children living in those isolated areas who don't want to come to a boarding school. So for many children, you know, having these boarding opportunities is a real godsend, you know, because simply they don't have that option in their local areas just because of the geographical distance. So I do think it's different by the very nature of it. But I also think that when you're looking after children overnight in a school, it's still your biggest risk. You know, children are children. You know, you've still got to make sure that the pastoral care is absolutely exemplary. And I know that most of my boarding families, the most important thing they're looking for is who's going to look after the children, who's going to make sure they're cared for, who's going to make sure they're brushing their teeth. And then once that list is ticked, then they start thinking, well, how are they doing in maths and English and science? You know, the pastoral care. You know, and I think that should be the same in all schools, but, you know, in all honesty, but so I'm not saying exams and, and scores are not important, but if the welfare of the children when they're living so far away of home isn't taken care of, then that, that really becomes a distant second. You can tell you are in a school right now and it, it, it sounds like it's break time or kids are running between <laughs> classes. They sound like they're having a lot of fun. Well, I'll give you an idea what that is. So it's 6.30 in the evening here. And that's some of our youngest boarders playing on an area we call Main School Close. And you can see it's just gone quiet. So it might mean there's a bit of feeding time coming. But that's a really important, you know, my office is sort of near the noise. And I do love that. Uh, you know, I love the fact that feeling and that noise you get of schools. So hopefully not too distracting for the podcast. But we're great believers in keeping boarders busy. Even though we have downtime, you know, we do structure the timetable a lot because, you know, we do find we, if boredom kicks in, that's when the problems kick in. So we do have very structured evening programs, weekend programs, you know, just to try and keep the boarders busy, because of course, many of them can't just pop home, you know, so when they come to boarding, you know, for many of them, they'll be here on the first day of term, and they won't see mum and dad until the very last day of term. And, uh, and, you know, a few who live more locally might have a bit of a circuit breaker in the middle. So we have to be mindful of that. So we're hitting that middle of term at the moment where we know that they do get a bit cranky, they do start missing home a little bit. So these moments, you know, we just got to keep an eye on the rhythm, but but it's a lovely sound, isn't it? That, you know, children having fun in schools. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it was noticeable a couple of times. And you could tell they're all going around into that break time or into that area just to, just to be let loose and to have fun. And it is a great, great bit of background noise. It just kind of proves it. Also, you, you're in a school, which is always nice. I want to talk about your kind of international experience. You've worked in various schools in a number of countries around the world. Just let the listeners know which countries that you've worked in? Well, I started in England and I started working in some quite difficult state schools in the north of England. My parents still live down in Cornwall, down in the southwest. And that was a real baptism of fire in terms of working in a tough school, which I think, I think this is the correct terminology. They went through special measures when I was, you know, after I left, it was a difficult school. I spent a good six months working in on the Shankill Road in Belfast as well when I was much younger, you know, and that's probably where I started to love you know, and I worked in a youth program, you know, that, and that was a tough experience, but a really rewarding experience. Once you realize when, 
you know, once you work hard for children and they know that you're there for genuine reasons, you know, if I can say that really did help my classroom management working in those spaces. Uh, I was very fortunate. I worked at the Garden International School in Rayong in Thailand. Uh, I was appointed as a head of faculty when I was quite young in that space. And I loved, you know, interacting with the culture of that area. Very fortunate again to work in the Alice Smith School in Kuala Lumpur, which is one of the big international schools and work with some really great leaders and people in that school. And uh, we were on holiday in Australia and I've, and I've worked in different states in Australia. I've spent some beautiful time in Western Australia, Victoria, and now Queensland. And contrary to popular belief, even those have their own little subtleties and differences. You know, it's a, such a different country at times, you know, and we, and we love Queensland. Queensland is just a beautiful space. So, yeah, I, I feel very blessed in my career. It was never really deliberate, Simon, in terms of, you know, choosing places on the map. I feel I've been very fortunate to navigate and work in such rich countries. You know, I mean, rich in culture and rich in, rich in great. I feel very settled in Australia. I consider myself both Australian and British now. Uh, I think most people here will be winding me up every time there's, there's the cricket match on. I'm not sure I'm, I'm, they completely assimilate me. but So I feel very fortunate. And, and to be honest, I love the Australian education system. You know, it really genuinely values holistic education. And I know that that's thrown around a lot in education settings. But you know, I think Australia, you know, we look at academics well, but, but we also genuinely, if someone wants to do different fields, I think that's really rewarded in the systems. And, and, and I think there's a huge amount of pathways that people can go through in that system. And so out of all the systems I've worked in, this is probably my favourite at the moment. That's probably why you spent the most amount of time there. I was going to ask you whether or not when you were, were you working in the north of England, whether or not you had ambitions or thoughts that one day I'll, I'll be leading a school in Queensland. You know, I think when you're a young teacher, even you know, in some some aspects, you you're pretty green. You've no idea. You're learning from good people. You're just trying to you're trying to survive at times, aren't you? I always knew, and this goes back to my love of geography. You know, and and, and I think that's always stayed with me, and even my teaching of geography. I think it goes back to one of the first questions about looking at the atlas. I, I, I knew I had itchy feet in terms of wanting to see the world. I honestly thought when I moved to the Garden International School in Thailand, I thought maybe I'll go there for a year and come back. I thought it would be a quick. Let's go and have a look at it. But I, I also am a great believer, you know, when I, when I landed there, you know, I think you've got to embrace that culture and you've got to sort of jump in with both feet. Now, would I have thought I'd be here leading a school? You know, Simon, if I'm honest, there's times even in my, even in my daily, I'm, I still pinch myself that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to lead a school like this. I feel very blessed to be, you know, to be a leader in this school community. You know, I think it's a great honour. Simon, our time is up. We've managed to cover quite a lot and it's been great hearing about your journey and about your story and about Taz and what you're doing at Toowoomba Anglican School in Queensland. I hope you enjoy your rest of your evening and get a chance to, to go and run around outside and, uh, and scream at the top of your voice. Now, Simon, it's been a real pleasure and you know, thank everyone for listening as well. And I hope you're well and stay safe over in the UK. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.